Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be starting in the second half of verse 18. If you have the ESV Bible, it's under the heading, To Live is Christ. The scripture says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with faith, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is God's word. Thank you, David. It's a densely packed piece of scripture. I did have the thought, my wife was like, why are you laughing? Like, I'm wondering how short a text I can give him at some point before everyone thinks it's ridiculous. What a, what a sweet text that we have both this week and next week as we consider the exaltation of Christ and the suffering of his people. As you think through what this text has for us, let me see if we can at the least uh, build a pathway for us to consider this text and be encouraged by it because the Apostle Paul is not merely saying, hey, look at me. He is, he is suggesting that we all should learn from his example. He, in fact, will say that later in chapter 3. So he is in prison. He actually uses the literal word chains. He says, I'm in chains for this cause. And then you look at how verse 18, it's actually the theme of the text is somewhat split. It ends with this, I, I'm rejoicing because the gospel's proclaimed at the, at the front part of verse 18. And then the latter part of verse 18, where David just read for us, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. So here's the apostle. He's in prison. He is suffering for the cause of Christ, and yet his attitude is one of joy and hope and a a pleasing outlook on what God is doing. So let me ask you. If Paul is using this for an example to the Philippians, on how to respond when life is hard, when suffering happens, then can you recognize that God wants you also to respond with peace, with joy, with confidence when life hurts? Oh, does life ever hurt you? Do you ever feel that, that press in your soul that causes you to despair that there's any reason to hope? You ever look at your, your current circumstances, whether it's the financial challenges you're experiencing, maybe it's the spiritual battle that you feel like you're never going to win. Perhaps you're looking at the people God has anchored around you in life, whether through marriage or your children, whether through physical circumstances or spiritual struggles, life is hard. As someone who frequently is given the privilege of kind of having front stage as God works his grace in people's life as they suffer, there are marriages that are hurting, there are parents who are hurting as they try to raise children for the Lord, there are people who are living in asymmetrical relationships where they're trying to please God while someone near them isn't, and they're hurting. Just this morning... A sweet church member asked me how my mom is doing. For years, she has been suffering, and my dad suffering alongside of her. She's bedridden, and her brain and her heart are gone, but she's physically alive, and so my dad has cared for her for years. Suffering is is normal to the condition of humanity in a fallen world. And yet, God calls us to live in this world in peace with joy, with hope as our foundation. So how do you get there? How do you get to this place of satisfaction and suffering and hold both? Because our, our, our 
world of help and, and therapy tells us that the way to get satisfaction is by getting rid of suffering. Right? Like, like kind of this Zen peace is to have this tranquility, and the way we pursue that generally in the world is by saying suffering should stop. We have counseling anesthesia. We have drug therapies to help us avoid hurting. And it's almost as though we think pain is the problem. Suffering is the problem. And so we struggle with the theology of a song like we just sang. God is enthroned on high, and he reigns in love. And then the world says, really? Wait, wait, hold on. You're telling me he's in charge, and this broken, sinful, hurt-filled world is an expression of his love? Y'all feel the tension of being a, a Christian who embraces a loving God and a God who's king. And then the Christian world responds to suffering, whether it's through a spouse, through circumstances, through um, underemployment, financial pressure, whether it's just the political frustrations of this world. And we enter into that suffering with anger, running from it. And the world says, oh, you, you have the same theology I have. And then we read Scripture, we read the Apostle Paul, and he's in prison with a threat of death hanging over his head, and he's like, I have joy. And he says that not like, I have joy, and you don't, you bums. He says it because he's saying, I have joy, and it's accessible to God's people. So as God's people, let's listen up to what the apostle says. Look in verse 18 again. Yes, I will rejoice. What's his confidence? What's his joy then? Verse 19 starts that word for. That's an explanatory phrase. I rejoice for. Here's the explanation. I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So there's a certainty that, that energizes his joy. And it's anchored to these two certainties that he has. The first is that God will answer prayer. Right? That is, through answered prayers, God will act. I, I can just suggest to you all that if you are like the standard Christian, you struggle with God's response to prayer. How many of you have prayed regularly for something and God has not answered it? So on what basis did the Apostle Paul grab onto joy, knowing with bedrock confidence God will answer? How does he know that this will come true? God will deliver. And if you were in jail, and the escape of jail was denying Christ, and you pray for escape from jail, what do you think the normal answer everyone is thinking? is just like, hey, deny Christ, you'll get out. And so you despair maybe of thinking, well, the only way out is sin. I'm praying for God to rescue me. There's no way he's going to rescue me by, by leading me to deny him. Therefore, I guess my lot in life is to go to jail and stay in jail. Like you might think that's what Paul's thinking. That's not the point. I think his point is this. He knows the Philippians are partnering with him in gospel ministry through prayer, and he has every reason to believe God answers prayers. Let me ask you, have you ever heard a verse in the Bible that promises God will answer prayers? Do you believe those verses? I think there's qualified answers to prayer. Have you ever asked for something God doesn't want to give you? So James 4 gives us this, this clarity on prayer. He says, you do not have answers to prayer because you don't do two things. First one, you don't even ask. Right? You don't have answers to prayer because you don't ask. The second reason you don't have answers to prayer in James 4 is because you ask wrongly so that you can consume it on your own desires. In other words, sometimes when we pray, we pray for the wrong types of things. Or you could read 1 John 5 or 1 John 3. They both speak to God answering prayers. Here's what 1 John 5.14 says. This is the confidence that we have toward him. 
that if we ask anything, don't miss this part, according to his will, he hears us. So we take a theology of prayer and put it together, we should have an absolute certainty God answers prayers when we pray according to his desires. When we pray according to what God is wanting to achieve, you should have absolute certainty that God will answer your prayers. So I want to take you back to Jesus in the garden. He's praying to God. I think we can make a couple assumptions, but I want to lead you there. When he's praying to the Father in the garden, do you think Jesus was praying according to God's will? I think you have some theological problems if you think he was praying against God's will. Right? Like, like Jesus Christ was expressing to the Father things that pleased the Father. You with me so far? Did God answer that prayer? Our theology should lead us to say, yes. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. So here we have a distinctly different but very human prayer with Jesus. He is praying for the redemption of mankind, and he is praying, if possible, that God would take the cup of suffering away from him. And then he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I think he's praying supremely for the redemption of mankind as according to the Father's will. He's also looking at the prospect of suffering under the Father's wrath as something that's not going to be a pleasant experience, but something he's fully willing to do if it be the Father's will. His prayer is really, really one of, of submission that God would achieve his purposes through him. Does God do that? Absolutely. If we're using Jesus as a guidepost and the Apostle Paul as a guidepost, I think we can suggest that when we pray, that we need to put guardrails on our prayers lest we hold God accountable for what he's never promised. We should not pray for things we want if we cannot defend God's will in them. God has a will revealed in Scripture. So you and I should be duty-bound that our faith in God is a biblical faith expressed with biblical prayer. So let me just, real practically, I think one of the ways we do this is we pray for the redemption of people. I think we should pray for the redemption of people. But God's will is the glorification of his Son in the proclamation of the gospel. Does God promise to redeem every man? No. Is it his will to redeem every man? I would suggest to you, no. But it is his will to glorify his son in the proclamation of the gospel. He has told us to do that to every person in the nations, or like all types of people in the nations. You with me so far? So when we pray that the gospel be given clearly, that the name of Christ would be advanced and glorified among people in this community, we know God is honored by that, wants it, and wants to enlist his people like us in that. And so we can have this certainty and clarity as we pray. God is doing this. I think a lot of times, though, the way we pray is something like, God save Johnny, our son. And we don't know if God's will is particularly to save our son. But we pray for Johnny, and we don't pray for the gospel advance in the community. As you pray for John, you should pray for his salvation. I don't think you have security in Scripture that he will get saved. But you do have confidence that God wants you to talk to him about Christ. God wants you to speak to Johnny of the glorious Savior who died for sinners. He wants you to plead with Johnny for the sake of Christ, that Johnny see the goodness of Christ, see the despair of sin, and see the hope of forgiveness that only comes through Jesus in other words, we pray for a solution to a problem rather than the same solution God wants, which is the glory of his son. Not that, that that clarifies it for you, but Paul's confidence here is God is going to do something. We'll explain what that is in just a moment. But it's not only that God is going to answer prayers, that God is going to send his spirit. Look, look again in the text, verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. 
For what? He has the confidence that God is going to answer prayer through your prayers and the help, the supplier, the provision that God gives. It's almost like a man going on a trip. If you're going to go camping or, or go on a vacation uh, for any amount of time, usually you pack supplies, whether it's just a change of clothes or if it's camping, hopefully some food. You know, if you can imagine in the days of the wagon trains going across the middle of the country that they would store up food and their whole household goods. That, that's the idea that the supplies, the provisions necessary to accomplish something. Here's the provision. The provision of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is the provision. It's not that the Spirit provides something else, it's that the Spirit himself is the necessary provision God gives us. In this case, it's the Holy Spirit who works in us Christ-likeness. That's why it's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ here. And probably in some way, theologically, we could defend the Trinity here, that is, that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are so united in the work of his people that we can speak of this agent here who is the provision of the Father as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I think if you're going to get technical, it's the Holy Spirit who moves his people to be like Jesus. He's an agent of Christ here. If that's the case, think of Paul's confidence and why he has joy. I am rejoicing because I am confident of two things. God will answer your prayers, and the Holy Spirit is the agent of help as he brings Christ's grace to bear. Those are related under the same preposition, so it's probably to be thought of something like this. Through your prayers, God's answer is his spirit. I just want you to think practically what that means then for us as we pray for one another. What are we praying for exactly? Not spiritual strength independence of God, but spiritual strength that's supplied by the Holy Spirit as he helps his people to see and embody Christ. I think that's really what's going on with the Holy Spirit's work there. So as I recognize people around me are suffering or as I am going through suffering and I pray for them in the middle of suffering, I am actually praying for the Holy Spirit to be an agent of Christ-likeness as he makes people see and know Jesus. Paul is not thinking the Holy Spirit's going to break prison bars. He's thinking the Holy Spirit is going to help me be as Jesus would be. That's how he's confident, and that's why he's confident. In fact, you know he's not confident about release. Look at the end of verse 20. Whether by life or by death. <laughs> so he is so confident, he's rejoicing, and yet within this same section, he's saying, and I might die. <laughs> like, he's rejoicing. But what might be coming down on him is a headman's axe. And he still has joy. Why? Because two things he knows are, are so certain. As the Philippians pray, God is moving. How is he moving? The Holy Spirit is doing something to strengthen and move and shape the apostle to be an agent of Christ-likeness. Full stop. That's cause for joy. Okay, so I just want you to imagine you're sitting with your best friend who tells you that his kid, who's 27, is hooked on drugs, he's leaving his family, and he is heartbroken. And you have to give him hope. And he's a believer. Here's the hope Paul gives the Philippians, that his suffering is relieved with this joy. Prayers and the presence of God's Spirit. Full stop. It's not, hey, you know what will help your son? There's this addiction program, and it will stop it. You know, that man needs to hear 
He might be 60 years old and his heart is crushed because his son is going to go through a massive trial as his addictions wreak havoc on his home. And this older man who's trying to shepherd his younger son who's addicted to drugs needs to find satisfaction in the grace of God that is supplied, not the false hopes the world gives us. The world does not solve the sin problem. It anesthetizes us from it. Here's the hope that Paul has. Joy in the middle of suffering because prayers are being answered and God's presence is being felt. All right, as we move forward, he, he uses the word deliverance. It's actually, in Greek, the word salvation. Okay, so here's his confidence. God is using these two answers to prayer, and they're related. Prayers that produce and affect the Holy Spirit's presence that helps Christ to be magnified in Paul. And he says, this will result in my salvation. So you might hear in that an echo that maybe Paul thinks he's going to be released from prison. I want to pull that back out of your mind and get rid of it if I can. I want you to look down with me into verse 28. And especially chapter 2, we'll get there in just a moment, I think will we'll shape your, our view of salvation. Verse 27, he begins speaking to them. He talks to them about living as a citizen of heaven. Verse 28, then he says, not frightened in anything. Okay, so this serenity and joy and peace in the middle of suffering, not frightened by anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them, your opponents, of their destruction, but of your what? Your salvation. Now, he's clearly in that context thinking of eternal salvation. But I want you to come to chapter 2 and look in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your what? Now, he's not saying work for your salvation. He is saying God's eternal salvation has implications for today. That is, God has saved us from sin. God has saved us to Jesus Christ. And that salvation is not merely rescue from condemnation. It is rescue from sin to a Savior. This is absolutely significant for us because he is suggesting to them that salvation is not some um, insurance benefit that has no relevance for day-to-day life. Right, like, like I, I think it was 27 when I bought life insurance. And outside of a $25 bill I, I get every month and pay, it does no good for me. In fact, it will probably never do me any good, to be honest. <laughs> In order to get it, I have to die. And she gets it all. <laughs> but, but salvation is not like that. Salvation is not this, like, I bought this thing, and now it's like somewhere in the ether, and I'll never see it or touch it or know it. Salvation is, I'm going to use this again in just a few moments, I hope. Salvation is a conviction of theological truth about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Okay, it's a conviction about, and it's a commitment to the person. Okay, it's neither one nor the other in exclusion. It's not merely just knowing facts. Faith is always personal. All right, so, so I have a conviction about what Jesus has done, about what the Bible says about him, and I have a commitment to the person. Paul is expecting that, that as God answers prayers and through the power of the Spirit in his life, that he will get an opportunity to live in such a way that his eternal salvation is manifest and secure by his behavior and commitment to Christ. In other words, his life will prove conviction of truth and commitment to person. He will live it out. If he truly believes this gospel message, if he's truly devoted to this gospel person named Jesus Christ, he will live in such a way that Christ is shown 
His salvation is exposed. His faith is held strong. He stands true to God in the middle of trials. I have heard people jokingly say something like this. When super angry, they'll say, I lost my salvation. Have you ever heard anyone say that? And I know what they mean for, they're saying for a moment, I didn't look anything like a Christian. You should hear Paul saying the reverse. In the moment of deepest temptation, in the moment of literal trial when my life is on the line, my salvation was shown by Christ-likeness. That's the deliverance, the salvation that the Holy Spirit provides and for which the Philippians are praying. I think it helps us think through what does victory look like in the middle of suffering? So what does it look like for this man who's, who's in his late 50s, early 60s, who's got a 27-year-old son who's now addicted to drugs and is leaving his family and everything's falling to pieces? How do you give that man hope? As you remind him that God's agenda is that he be godly for his son's sake. That he love Christ through his actions towards his son. God's goal for that man is for him to be like Jesus. And I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to solve life's problems for this man. This man needs to be called to Christ's likeness as he hurts and as he sees his family shredding its unity through drugs. Is that older man needs to embody the character of Christ. That's what the father wants. In fact, I think you can see evidence of this as we move forward, Paul, Paul moves on. So I think we start with, how do I get joy? I am confident of this thought, Paul says. My joy is anchored to knowing God answers prayers and knowing he's answering by supplying the power of the Spirit that will lead to me walking in salvation. Move forward. He keeps arguing this thought, and he says, as it is my eager expectation, so he has a transition of thought now. He's going to fill in, I think, this idea of salvation. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. All right, so, so you have this certainty at the beginning that God is going to answer your prayers, that God answers. Now we have a certainty about what type of need God answers. What type of need does God answer? Because Paul is not talking about rescue. In fact, he ends this thought with, I know God is going to answer this need, and I still might die. So lest we think that the need is rescue for life, he is saying the need is something different. What desperate need captivates Paul's soul in this thought? It's kind of two statements, and, and they're the reverse of each other. So let's start with the first one that he would not dishonor Christ through silence or distortions. That he would not dishonor Christ through silence or distortions. We have this fantastic gift in the United States, the Fifth Amendment. It's the right to silence. Right? So if you ever get arrested, every good lawyer says do what? Don't say anything. All right, don't say anything. All you law officers are looking at me like, you bum. <laughs> Be quiet. My, my general and only interactions on the wrong side of the law are usually when I've been driving too fast. I think it's only happened once in my entire life. <laughs> that is also not true just for honesty's sake. Officer comes to the window, and the first thing they ask is like this trick question. Do you know why I pulled you over? Like, no? It's like, are you supposed to confess? Yeah, I was going 80 in a 55. You're done. Don't say that. On the other hand... If you act like you have no clue, like, no, officer, are you out of your mind for pulling me over? You know you're in trouble for being a jerk. Right? They, got you, they got you on this dilemma. I want you to go back to this text and think what Paul is suggesting here. He knows as he stands in front of Caesar 
And he testifies to why he's on trial. That he could easily escape prosecution and persecution by silence. By distortion. By minimization of the threat of Christianity. There is no Lord but Caesar, a Roman might say. And Paul is going to stand in front of the Caesar that the whole Roman Empire worships and say there is no Lord but Jesus. And it's idolatry and damnable sin to worship any other Lord. How do you think Caesar is going to take that? How's that going to go for Paul? So you see the temptation he's experiencing that is through silence or distortion or minimization of the truth. Jesus Christ will not be cause of his death. Verse 20, my eager expectation and hope. These are positive words. They're positive words. And he's saying not that through minimization, not through silence, I don't want to do that, but through actual clear, courageous, bold proclamation, Christ will be exalted. The prefix on that word exalted is mega. For those of you who are overly politically minded, not maga. Mega as in big. God will make Jesus look glorious, majestic, and huge before the emperor, and he will be shown to be small. That's Paul's prayer. I want the world to see Jesus, and I might die. And so in cowardice, I am tempted and pressed to minimize the claims of Christ. But his, he's a hope-filled thought of the future. In fact, if I can just, like, interpretively and linguistically share with you one of my pet peeves, and now it will be all of yours too. The difference between anxiety and eagerness. I have heard people say things like this before. Man, I am so anxious for Christmas. I will hardly be able to sleep the night before because I am so looking forward to my kids and everyone opening up gifts. That is the wrong use of anxiety. Anxiety is generally dread. Eagerness is a hopeful outlook. You are eager for Christmas. You are eager for good opportunities. I am always eager for steak. Right? If, if you're inviting me over for steak, and I say, yeah, I'm really anxious about tomorrow, I have said the wrong word. I am eager for this thing. It's a positive word that looks forward with hope and expectation of goodness. Paul says, my hope and eager expectation is that I wouldn't hide the glory of Jesus Christ. But with courage, notice this little word here, as always Christ would be honored in my body. When does Christ get honored by Paul? He is laying a foundation with which he's teaching the Philippians how to live life. And if he's doing that to the Philippian church, he's also doing that to the Bakersfield church. What is he saying about how he lives life? My hope and eager expectation is that Christ would always be magnified. Always. Christians, there is never a time in your life in which your primary obligation is not to honor Christ. It is always to honor Christ. And in the middle of suffering, this is where Christ looks glorious. Is in suffering, we refuse to sin to get out of suffering because Christ is worth suffering for. In fact, in this text, Paul says Christ is worth dying for, right? Look, look at the end of verse 20. Whether by life or by death. There are times it's easier to die, honestly. Right? Like, Dying, Paul says in the next verse, is an escape. To die is gain. He will say, but it is more needful to be present in the body because Christ is using me. Living sometimes is harder than dying. But in all of this, no matter what Christ does, if Christ calls him to die in a Roman prison, or Christ calls him to testify before Caesar, or Christ just calls him to live a life making tents, 
I'm talking to people about Jesus. In all ways, at all times, Paul says, my aim is to honor and exalt Christ, making him look glorious. That's the aim of the apostle. This is what gives them so much confidence in their prayer. What is he hoping to accomplish, and what are the Philippians praying for? That God would be glorious. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Manifesting Christ in and through Paul. This is what leads his conviction. He is praying for things entirely different than our therapeutic world prays for. I mean, can, can, can we all, like in that moment, if we're sitting in a coffee shop and our sweet friend tells us his family's falling apart because his son is on drugs, our hope is to give him comforts. But ultimately, that comfort has got to lead to Christ being glorified or we are selling him a false hope. But that's so much what we want to do, right? We want to help him think about, hey, there's a solution for drugs. There's a solution for brokenness. There's a solution for all of this. Listen, Christ being magnified is the heart of God. That's what gives certainty to our prayers is we pray the heart of God to him. If you want proof that this is the heart of God, I want you to come to chapter 2. In the most profound theological stuff in Philippians, you could miss this. He says, have the mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ in verse 5. Now, we're going to follow Christ's pattern here. He was in the form of God, verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. That's the idea of grasped. But Christ emptied himself, took on the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of humanity or mankind, and found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself. He was obedient to God to the point of death. Did Christ suffer like no man has ever suffered? Our sweet Savior suffered. He suffered. In obedience to whom? Here's the Father's will. To call his Son to suffer. To call his Son to deny himself. To call his Son to abandon the sweetness of heaven's angels to suffer the hatred of humanity for 30-some years, to suffer under his wrath like no one will ever in all of history, not all of the citizens of hell for all of eternity could ever in all of the accumulated suffering ever suffer. He has suffered so cosmically that your mind, though it spends eternity understanding Jesus, will never understand how much he suffered in one moment on the cross. He suffered because God said, suffer, son. Right? You with me? So when God looks at us and says, suffer, he is calling us to the same type of calling that he called Jesus to. Let's keep rolling. Therefore, verse 9, God highly exalted him. But what is Paul's aim? Whether by life or by death, Christ would be exalted. How much did it cost Jesus in obedience to a father to get to the place where his father says, let's exalt you, son? How expensive in terms of cost to the son was that exaltation? And now we can see why Paul, later in Philippians, will say something like this. My heart's desire is to be conformed to his suffering. Jesus Christ did not suffer because God is unkind. Jesus Christ suffered because God's aims were to exalt his son so that all mankind would see the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and have hope if they were to trust in him. And ultimately, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. Okay, so here's God's mission for which we pray, the exaltation of Jesus for the glory of the Father. That purchase price to get to that missional aim cost Jesus 
years of suffering, cost him the glories of heaven in this life, cost him the wrath of God on his cross. And now he calls us to little doses of suffering that as I suffer, and we use this way, 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 way too loosely, like this is my what to bear. This is my cross to bear. We all should be very ashamed at using that phrase sometimes. But in some small way, we are echoes of Jesus' suffering because through our suffering, we are putting on display the value that God has for the glory of Christ in suffering. Think about how precious the glory of Christ is that, that the Father would commend to his Son a life of servanthood, obedience to the point of death and that type of suffering in order to achieve the outcome of glory for the Father and glory for the Son. Is your suffering, like are you willing to embrace that price? Paul's fear, go back to the end or the beginning of verse 20, is my eager expectation and hope is that, and he caught, catches himself, not that I would be ashamed. Not that because of fear of what it would cost me, I would pull back and be silent. So my fear is that I would do that, but I'm eager because I think through God's strength, with courage, I will show and speak of Christ when my life is on the line. So that whether by life or by death, Christ is exalted in my body. It gives them a lot of hope. We want to hope reasonably in the wrong types of things. God has put you in a place of affliction at work. You have obnoxious coworkers. And so you pray that God would relieve that conflict, the pain pressure like they would all get saved and then you would like have this little heavenly workplace or perhaps your boss would see how bad they are and fire them all or perhaps they would all see how cool and nice you are and they would love you right like we pray for those we don't know what god's going to do so we pray for like one of those three types of things like god get rid of them god fix them or god just help them to like me and I think our Father in heaven is saying, I love you too much to waste your life that way. I, I didn't call you to comfort. I called you to show my son's glory and worth. And if you give up on him when it's hard, you don't think he's precious. If the instant there's a price tag connected to you holding on to Jesus, you get rid of Jesus, his price is small. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ to Festus and to Herod Agrippa and his wife Bernice in Acts chapter 25 and 26. If you want to read for your encouragement, Acts 26, the Apostle Paul in Caesarea Maritime, so it's right there on the Mediterranean coast, it's this beautiful setting, uh, this, this former Roman fortress is still there in ruins, but you can still go there. And you read Acts 26 and you can almost imagine the Apostle Paul as the waves of the Mediterranean are sloshing into the palace pool below him, sitting there in the courtyard of Herod Agrippa, sharing the gospel. And he does. And he speaks to Herod. As Herod says, hey, speak freely. <laughs> it's like, people you don't want to say that to is probably Paul. I'm like, okay. And he goes. And he walks through how he used to be a Jewish person who's upright. And then he shares how Jesus Christ was, was speaking to him on the road to Damascus and how he's redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And then he looks at Herod and says, you know the prophets. <laughs> oh. right? He says, you know this is true, Herod. You know this. And Herod's you're not going to convince me in such a short time, Paul. That's what that happens. And Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. And we don't have a record of, of this interaction that would come after these verses here from Paul. But Paul's desire was that he would stand in front of the Caesar of Rome and make Christ look glorious. 
And that might cause him to get killed. Or he might go free. Paul says, I would rather die in the next verses. Because to die is gain. But here we have this certainty in the middle of suffering. Paul's greatest desire was the exaltation of Christ. So in the middle of suffering, he knows God is answering that prayer. Because that's the type of mission God sent Christ to pursue. The glory of God and the exaltation, exaltation of his son. I am not suggesting that we should not pray for the salvation of our children. I'm not suggesting that we should not pray for the Lord to strengthen our church by increasing its numbers. But I am suggesting for you and I that our promises that we hold in Scripture are directly related to the heart of God and the mission of Christ. And the closer we see them revealed in Scripture, the more clearly we see them defined in Scripture, the more hope we have that God answers according to his will because we know his will. It's revealed in Scripture. And with that, we have hope. So can I encourage you in the middle of suffering, start praying for Christ to be exalted. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you strength to live out the character of Christ. Start investigating the word of God so that you know what the character of Christ would look like in a given situation. I mean, if you think that Christ was always gentle, you need to reread the Gospels. He turns over the tables of money changers and chases them out of the temple with a whip. I have not run into the occasion where I get to do that and say it was Christ-like, but our theology can, cannot be gripped by this kind of um, overly kind, so gentle that he never speaks the truth type of Jesus. On the other hand, we know that Jesus did and said those things because of a sweet devotion to his Father and love for the truth to be said and heard by those who are lost. So let me restate the major theme here. The believer's joy is a result of a righteous desire that Christ would be exalted. And confidence that God will do that by answering prayer through the power of the Spirit to lead to the securing of salvation and manifesting of Christ-likeness in the middle of suffering. Or maybe I could just say more simply, God gives grace and power to glorify Christ by helping us be like Christ and speak of Christ. So pray for those things. Calibrate your value of suffering towards those things. So if God calls you to years and years of suffering, my wife isn't in here, so I'm going to use my marriage as an example. It's always a wise thing to do. If, if I am the type of man that's really, really hard to live with, there are multiple solutions the world might give my wife, like divorce. There are other solutions like murder that hopefully people wouldn't give. Right? These are, these are possible solutions. The righteous solution is for godly counselors or my wife with her own ministry and study of the word to get to the place where she recognizes God's solution is suffering with me. Showing me the patience and the kindness and the grace of Christ. And as you all are watching on, you're like, man, Mark's a bum. But she is showing the sweetness and the compassion and the goodness of Christ. And then as she speaks to me, she calls me to obey Christ. She calls me to embody the behaviors and the lifestyle of Christ as she does. And she might have to pray in the quietness of her life, God, give me strength to manifest Christ and not a sinful attitude. But the way we want to pray is like, Mark, or God, fix Mark. Or get rid of him. But rescue me from him and his badness. And that's how we tend to think and pray. And the Apostle Paul, what is his attitude? Go back to verse 18. People are preaching Christ. I'm rejoicing. You're praying God's going to answer? I'm rejoicing. 
Even if I die, this is great. Like, this is a good thing because Christ is magnified. Even in my death, Christ is made to look glorious. I'm excited about that. And from a human perspective, like, you're in prison. You're suffering. You might die. Paul's like, yeah, but Christ, Christ, do you see him? He's worth dying for. He's worth suffering for. He's worth preaching about. He's worth my life times a billion billion. And he's on display. This is so worth it. That's why I'm excited, the the apostle says. You can imagine the Philippians getting this letter who are also suffering. They're like, so you're telling me we've got to suffer and be joyful? I can only imagine the, the apostle saying, is Christ being magnified in your suffering? Love that. You don't have to love suffering, but love that. Is God shaping you to look like Christ and empowering you to do that? Love that. Find joy in that. Because in those things, Christ is exalted. And that's what God wants for you. Joy in the middle of suffering, peace in the middle of suffering is by sharing the heart of God and loving the exaltation of his son even through your suffering and through your Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is encouraging to know that you make the prospect of joy something that we can experience even in the middle of suffering. So often we comfort our hearts by knowing that suffering is temporary, knowing that suffering will one day end in our entrance into heaven, knowing that suffering is only as temporary as our presence is with the people that cause it. Lord, we are rebuked and encouraged by the reminder that if Christ is exalted, our heart should find deep, lasting joy. And if through that suffering you are shaping us to look more like Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, with this we also should find deep, lasting joy. Father, thank you so much for being willing through your love toward us to shape us to Christ-likeness and give us the sweet, glorious, rich privilege of suffering to make Christ known. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts. We are often quiet when the gospel is attacked. We are quiet when Christ is disparaged. We are quiet when others express doubt that Christ is good. And we do this to maintain friendships, maintain respectability, maintain good and comfortable experiences. And for this, Lord, we should feel sinful shame because we have done wrong. Lord, I pray that like with the apostle, we might always exalt Christ in our bodies with our words, with our thoughts, that Christ might have preeminence among his church, that you might call many more sons and daughters to glory, adopting them and bringing them into your household. Lord, help us to love you by pursuing the glory of Christ in our lives. I ask that you would help us to experience deep joy as we do these things. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.